I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters Legal Podcast. This week on the show, we're taking a look back at some of the key themes, topics, and moments from our first 70 episodes. In the final episode of this look back series, we'll start looking ahead to the future of the legal profession and all the ways legal may never be the same in a post-pandemic world. From episode 26, Bob Ambrosi, founder of Law Sites. Bob, you've got a unique vantage point uh, in terms of your ability to observe the, the macro trends in the industry, as well as the specific impacts on, on legal tech. What have you seen the, the biggest impacts of the coronavirus crisis to, to be to this point? I, I think the biggest impact um, is that uh, suddenly technology is uh, something that we're all uh, recognizing the value of. I, 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 um, I thought, I don't know if you know the UK writer, uh, Joanna Goodman, but I, I thought yep. she really put it well in, in an article that she wrote this week. I mean, we, we've all been talking about the fact that, uh, and I've heard you say this as well, that you know, the future has suddenly arrived. I mean, right. we, we've all been preparing for a future that we've envisioned to be five or 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road. And I think a lot of law firms have thought about their adoption of technology uh, as something that, yeah, we're going to get to that at some point. We're going to we're we're moving in that direction, but there's no big hurry about it. Um, and and this has brought the future here very suddenly. This has forced us to be thinking about how we use technology very suddenly. But even more than that, and the point that Joanna made that I thought was really uh, insightful is that there had there a lot of lawyers still harbor this mindset around technology that technology is a threat to them that that technology is something to be feared. They have this vision of artificial intelligence taking away their work, uh, of efficiencies driven by technology cutting into their billable hours and their business model. Um, you know, that's, that's not universal, of course, but there are a lot of attorneys who still uh, have harbored that kind of fear, that kind yeah. of, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, resistance to it. This is something to stave off as long as you can. To stave off. And so I, I think probably the most dramatic change uh, in the short term here is that suddenly the attorneys who saw technology as something to fear now understand it to be a lifeline, now understand it to be something that is going to keep their practices afloat enable mm-hmm. them to continue to serve their clients, enable them to continue to stay in business and make a living. I, you know, I, I've just been amazed. I was on a Zoom conference call yesterday with a, a group of lawyers, uh, about uh, 30 lawyers for a, a meeting. Um, and for a number of the lawyers on the call, they had never been on a Zoom call before. Right. I, I mean, you know, what cave have you been living in that you've never been on a Zoom call? But that that really says something about the kind of the state of technology. And, you know, you and I live in this world where we talk a lot about how technology can be used to drive efficiency and, and how innovation can change legal practice. But a lot of rank and file lawyers just haven't really had to give that any serious thought until this moment. So yeah, I, I think that's really significant. I, I, I think you know, it's it's not just that the future ha- has arrived, but it, it's that lawyers' eyes are, are being forced open in a way that they never have been before. 
From episode 40, Kim Bennett, founder of K Bennett Law, LLC. So it sounds like thanks to your subscription business model where so much of your monthly revenue is, is secured through the recurring revenue stream that is your subscriptions, uh, your, your clients still need those services maybe more than ever, and you're actually doing hiring in this climate. Yeah, so absolutely. So I, here's the thing that how we view this. So we, we sit as a team member to our clients, and I think that's a part of the designing of the subscription. And so when someone's thinking about moving into this model, being very intentional about how you're designing it and how you intend to show up for your clients is key. And for us, that is just amplified right now. And so we, through, through this time when clients are having, you know, having to strategize about all the things that are happening in their business, really, really concerned about how they manage their teams, thinking about, you know, how do they have to pivot maybe some of their products? It's really being able to be a partner to have those, those deeper discussions. And I think it's an opportunity that a lot of lawyers are missing, right? Because we want to come in in this box in this, in this nice, like pretty little box of like what fits uh, what a lawyer is supposed to do. And I think that's, that's a, a missed opportunity because for a lot of people, we're the only time they, 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 they you know, interacted with a lawyer, particularly on like more of the consumer side or the family side. But in, in my world with business, I might be the beginning of that, of that relationship. And that's how I actually position myself as one of the beginning pieces of it. And so I want to help develop what it, what it could look like. How, how do we sit, right? How do we help you strategize through the ebbs and flows? Because if you only think, of a, think about us as reactive, then you're only going to come to us when you're in fires. But if I help you strategize and be, be, be proactive and be intentional about your you're, you're thinking about how you build your business and I can show up in strengths that aren't just a lawyer, right? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business, you know, I'm a, I own businesses. I, you know, I like to travel. I'm engaged in politics. Like if all those things can come into how I can also support my clients, isn't that even better for them? And so in, in my, in my world, it's just kind of showed the way we, we've designed it, how we want to show up for our clients is, has been amplified in this time. So if, if anything has been changed, it's that we want to double down on the idea that we're here to support our clients, that we are here to communicate with our clients that, yes, I'm a lawyer, but I'm more than that, right? It, I'm a, that's a hat I wear, right? It's not the only right. hat. And then I can show up for ways that are really helpful. And so in our industry, when we're thinking about disruption back to our earlier conversation, and, you know, even how, you know, liability insurance happens when you want lawyers to stay in a very small box. And that's just not realistic with how businesses and people work because people are a part of a larger system. And until we start taking a systems approach to a lot of the things that we're dealing with, whether it's law firms or schools or hospitals, right, healthcare, we're going to keep on having these big um, crises of, how, of how, how we design it because we're not really thinking about the full picture. And so that's my goal, to think about the full picture of the client and to serve them in ways that don't always have to look like a traditional lawyer. From episode 27, Cynthia Morgan-Reed, founder and CEO of Vance Law. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that, that. And a lot of this seems to boil down to the people side of things, getting people that are adaptable, entrepreneurial, and are excited about this new world. And there's going to be some traditionalists that you'll probably refer to uh, um, a more traditional bricks and mortar firm or, and that's the kind of environment they, they'll really um, survive in. Um, now, now let's talk about the advice you might share to the, you know, hundreds of thousands of law firms in North America that, and, and around the world that are all of a sudden, virtual firms uh, because of the, the COVID-19 situation. Are there, is there some practical advice you can, you can share in terms of 
uh, how they might adapt to this new reality and some, some pro tips as a you know, seasoned operator of a virtual law firm that you might be able to, to share with our audience. I think they're probably finding those tips along the way already in that, you know, they're having to adapt and allowing people to work from home. I guess I would say to that, don't be afraid of what that means after the pandemic has passed, right? right. You know, if people are more confident and they're being just as productive and um, just as reliable at working from home as they were prior, don't re-implement this requirement that you have to have FaceTime and you have to be in the office so many days a week. I mean, I hear that all the time from folks like, oh, I had to be on this committee and I had to you know, participate in this function and I had to be at the, the office at least four days a week. And I just, you know, I just don't think that's necessary. And I think people are clearly seeing that there's the opportunity to work in a different way and embrace that. You know, the other thing I would say that is part of the mantra of my particular firm is pay people with their work. And I know a lot of firms are making cutbacks right now, traditional firms reducing salaries, furloughing people. And I think it's really critical for them as they move into the future to look at why they had to make those cuts. And I'm confident that many of those cuts are due to the fact that they have such high overhead. And you know, there is now the ability to have, not just by working virtually, but by adopting technologies and by implementing uh, you know, responsible measures into how you're governing your law firm that will allow you to cut costs and cut out mm -hmm. a lot of overhead. You know, I, I joke about the fact that one firm I worked at, I decided to leave that firm because I was quite frankly tired of paying for the Equity Partners Country Club memberships. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's still the way many traditional firms may want to work. I'm not sure that in this brave new world, most people are going to continue to put up with that. From episode 45. Ed Walters, founder and CEO of FastCase. The practice of law. Uh, and Ed, I'll, I want to point out that you're the editor of a book called Data Driven Law, Law, Data Analytics and the New Legal Services. So uh, a must read for anyone that's interested in deep diving on this topic. But as, as you pointed out, there's an opportunity for Moneyball style analytics in in legal and to do away with hunches to do away with gut instinct and talk about how how you can actually leverage data to make decisions and and take away all the subjectivity and and errors that often come along with trusting our judgment or trusting our gut can, can you talk about a few places that data can be leveraged in the practice of law that maybe are not front of mind or maybe not obvious to most lawyers? Yeah, so um, maybe just two. Um, so in addition to working with uh, lawyers who subscribe to FastCase, FastCase is a business and we use law firms. Uh, and often when we start some sort of a legal matter where FastCase is the client, we will say to our law firm, how much is this likely to cost? And law firms will say something like, <laughs> it's going to cost you $650 times however many hours it takes us to finish the work. Um, and, and, you know, for me as a client, I will say, look, um, I've done zero of these. This is going to be the first time I've done a complaint in this court or this kind of tax filing, right? Um, you've done hundreds or thousands of them. You are in the best position to know what this is going to cost. You've got all of the data. There's an information asymmetry. So share it back with me. I don't need perfect data. I don't need you to say this is even like a fixed fee, although I would love a fixed fee. 
tell me what it's cost in the past. Give me the bell curve. You know, tell me what characterizes the, the matters that cost the most. Because yeah. in a business, I need to make like those cost benefit decisions, right? Do I want to pursue this litigation or not? Uh, is it worthwhile to, um, you know, file in this particular way in tax? Is it going to save us enough money considering the legal fees? Or is the juice not worth the squeeze? You know, we want to acquire a small company. Um, does it even make sense to use a law firm in that case? Or should we just go it alone? And so in the past, like I'd say, you know, clients make these decisions based on guesswork. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no data that they can use to say um, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. Should we oppose this motion and spend the money um, recognizing that it is highly unlikely to succeed? Right. Should we settle this case today instead of litigating it? Because we know that our chances of winning are 9%, right? Uh, so I, I would just say from a client's perspective, um, law feels very foreign and very risky in part because of that information asymmetry. And Jack, you and I have talked about this a little bit before. Um, the, the kind of now famous American Bar Foundation survey that says that 20% of people who need legal help in the US and then a number that's kind of mirrored in Canada and worldwide um, are doing that through the legal services market. 80% of people who have problems are not. Right. And many lawyers and law firms approach this as if it is a problem exogenous to them. Um, legal services are expensive and that's a fact of life. That is a fixed part of the world. And people don't have enough money, especially in the people law sector, but also in the corporate law sector to pay for these very expensive products. And that's too bad. Poverty, they might say, like who is right. access to justice uh, crisis. And, and somebody else needs to solve that problem. Yes, if, if we could just solve poverty, then people could afford my expensive legal services when they appear in court. Uh, right. And the fact that no one can possibly understand how much this legal service is going to cost um, is just an unfortunate byproduct of what legal services are. And so, you know, as, as you have said in uh, the Client Center Law Firm um, and in many uh, of your speeches, that's not how markets work. That is, that is like the, the uh, quote in the frame on, behind the desk of the CEO of Netflix and Uber, right? That is the, the rationale for the disruptor. If you yeah. want to find a market to disrupt, find a market that says something like that. The customer's problems are their own problems and not ours. You know, the, the features of this market are fixed forever and there's nothing we can do it about it. But, you know, we'll just expect customers to rewind the cassette and drive back to our bricks and mortar store uh, to return that one cassette and then look to see if we have that other cassette that they want in stock. Right. So, so time and again, uh, you know, law firms can't, really or haven't really met uh, clients where they live, where they want to live. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a good news, bad news thing, right? If you're an innovative law firm, it's a great news thing because everything that you do to delight customers, to create uh, an effortless experience for them, uh, to quote you, Jack, um, means more business for you. Means that, that you can reach- That 80% of the market is up for grabs that latent market is all upside, right? And 
Um, I've heard you say this number of times before, but uh, I will maybe parrot it back to you. Uh, the last survey I saw of this legal services market, Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute, the size of the legal services market in the U.S. about four hundred thirty-seven billion dollars. That's just twenty percent. Right. Right. So the the latent market is probably easily as big. The size of the legal services market in the U.S. alone is probably closer to one trillion dollars. Um, and as you say in your book. If you look at the, the size of the market for Netflix today, it is far in excess of the entire market for Blockbuster and all of the video rental services. I can't even think what they were anymore. Um, right. You know, it's Blockbuster not that, and its ilk never had yeah. businesses that were the scale of Netflix, uh, even at their peak. Right. Uh, and so it's not like uh, Netflix just displaced the Blockbuster market. Netflix created a market that engulfed the blockbuster market. And so the good news is for innovative legal services providers, for entrepreneurial lawyers, I would say probably, you know, the, the cohort that's using Clio and Fastcase right now, uh, there is so much upside. There is such a great opportunity, you know, maybe not to be like a global Netflix, to, but to be the Netflix of family law lawyers in your community, to be the Netflix of corporate formation or corporate bankruptcy in your market, uh, you might be able to reach people that traditional law firms were never able to. So that's the good news part of it. Um, you know, the bad news part of it is nobody's doing it. Or very, very few law firms are changing their business models, even now. From episode 21, Richard Susskind, author of The Future of the Professions. Excuse me. One of the phrases you use in your, your book that I, I quite like is uh, one that you use with your, your clients quite frequently, as you mentioned in the book, which is you can't change the wheels on a moving car. And, and that yes. being one of the reasons you see so much resistance to change in law firms and, and courts alike. And, and perhaps because of coronavirus, the, the car has stopped at a time that nobody anticipated it would. And, and there's an opportunity to do a bit of a, a retrofit. Uh, can, can you comment on whether you think this, this pause and slowdown that we're seeing across the entire economy uh, with many court systems and with many law firms will, will be an opportunity or should be regarded as an opportunity to, to change the tires on the car, so to speak? I think, I mean, my answer to the question, how do you change the wheel on a moving car, is in fact that you start a new car altogether. Because it seems mm. to me the mistake is often trying to graft new, if I can push the metaphor a little bit further, uh, uh, graft more technology onto the old car, as it were, uh, not really to fundamentally change what's going on, but to systematize, to turbocharge the current car. My argument is we need new vehicles. And in the court, that's what the remote court is. It's not a turbocharged version of the old court. It's something quite different. And we need to think the same in legal practice. I did want to just say, just while we have qualification, uh, to a previous comment, we've also got to be alive to the fact that home working is not sustainable for everyone. I worry right. about people's I worry about people's mental health. I worry about the sheer logistics of a young family with kids working at home and so forth. And so the best way of seeing this just now, this experience is a, a massive unscheduled pilot from which we've got to learn a lot. We really should be thinking deeply 
uh, about capturing as much data of, of this experience as possible, seeing during this period what can we do better using technology than we hadn't imagined, also reflecting on what was good enough, and frankly, recognizing these areas where, with all the will in the world, with all the technology in the world, we still need some kind of face-to-face -face personal interaction. But we need to be thinking about this systematically. Um, in a way, I, I often draw the distinction between the social entrepreneur and the, the social scientist. The social entrepreneur is the person with, uh, uh, who has the gut feeling that some major societal good can perhaps be attained through this fundamental change without much empirical evidence to support it. But if they're gifted, they're usually right. The social scientist is far more systematic and they spend lots of time analyzing the data. Uh, in, in a way, we need to steer a middle ground here um, because in the light of the experience we've had, we have to think to ourselves, what does a good court system look like? What does great legal service feel like? And uh, yes. A, a couple of ideas to unpack there. N number one, with the courts and the, the system, the, the situation they've been forced into amidst this, this crisis, do you believe they'll they'll actually build that that new car to to go back to your your metaphor and leapfrog over what many I believe we're advocating for in terms of fairly incremental improvements and instead realize that this completely transformed view of what courts need to be should be realized with uh, aggressively against this kind of a a, a crisis. I think what we're seeing just now in most courts, sensible courts around the world, is what they're doing is tackling the less complex, lower value, lesser impact cases and putting in place this new car for that. I, I think once you've got that new vehicle in place, we'll build on that and we will add incrementally. So it's not an overwrite revolution. So we suddenly are conducting jury trials uh, across uh, Skype. That, that's not happening. It shouldn't happen. It seems to me what we should be doing fairly quickly is addressing the very high volume of cases, which as I say, are relatively low value, putting in place robust technology from that, and in light of this experience, grow far more incrementally towards embracing the whole system. So again, and I probably say, this is the last time we should use the metaphor, as it were, the, the, the new car will get bigger and bigger, uh, but the old car will run in parallel, and eventually the old car will run out of steam, and the, and the new car will have taken on the entire workload. All of this is to say, I don't anticipate this is a change over the next uh, 18 months. I, I think this has been the pilot study over a six month period, and uh, if I had to put timescales on it, in my book, I'd said that uh, I thought transformation of courts is a 10-year exercise. This will probably change it into a five or six-year exercise. Right. Uh, I was going to back to your earlier question, which I'm conscious I wasn't really answering. And, and it, I want to draw the distinction between automation and transformation. Because a lot of what we've seen so far is still automation. It's still using technology to streamline and optimize the old ways of working. The real opportunity here is transformation. It's to allow ourselves to deliver services, whether it be court services or legal services, in ways that previously weren't imaginable. So the question of making the leaps an interesting one, I think people find it quite instinctively acceptable to render your current service more efficient through technology. They find it far more challenging to think that we sweep it away entirely uh, and we change the way we work. But I think if you look also at all the, the great case studies of technology over the last 20 or 30 years, very few of them represent the automation of previously existing businesses. The really exciting thing about almost all the poster children in the world of technology 
is they've allowed us to do things that previously weren't feasible or practicable. And that's the kind of mindset we need to have, I think, in law, not just in the courts, but in law firms too, and alternative legal providers. From episode 42, Mark Britton, founder of Avo. So your your vision of the, the FaceTime with four people attending a, a hearing looks looks prescient now. I, I got off the phone with a judge from Florida uh, just before uh, this podcast, um, and, and she described the fact that they have uh, now 28 judges doing hearings over Zoom calls and have had awesome. over... 4,000 hearings now over, over Zoom, and it's really starting to happen. So I do think we, we are seeing the, the crucible that is COVID-19, maybe you know, finally catalyzing some of this change. And, and, and maybe a, a, a final parting thought from you, Mark, this has been a um, super interesting discussion. We, we could go on for, for hours, and, and you and I have, uh, when we have the, the leisure of that time, and maybe a glass of wine, but uh, focusing in on, on a closing question, uh, how do you think about the the changes that were maybe underway? You spent a lot of time thinking about what the future of legal services looks like uh, at Avo, and and have certainly seen you offer a super valuable perspective on that as a board member uh, and investor at Clio. What do you see maybe that you thought maybe was off in the distant future, uh, the ten plus year time horizon, potentially getting pulled ahead? Uh, thanks to the change that that COVID-19 seems to be driving. As you, as you said, the silver lining in all of this is maybe that we're seeing transformation accelerate. What, what do you see that accelerating in the legal industry? Okay, here's, here's kind of how I chunk the legal industry in my mind. There's the acquisition of the customer, so the marketing, but that, that conversation that I was talking about, there's that yep. piece. Then there is the processing and administrating with that customer, the interaction, and Clio covers a lot of that. Then there is the lawyering piece that is in parallel with uh, the work that you're doing for the customer. And I, I would probably call that the, the manufacturing line. I, I mentioned that earlier, possibly. But so, you know, there, there's the, the, the customer tells you what they want and need. And then, and then as the lawyer, you go off and manufacture it. And those two things don't touch a lot and they shouldn't necessarily touch. You go off and write your brief or what have you. That's, it's not necessarily for the customer to get involved in after they've told you all the facts. Right. And then there is the, the, the judicial part, right? So I look at four parts. There's the acquisition part. There's the operational administrative part. There is the lawyer art slash manufacturing part. And then that kind of overlaps into the judicial piece. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that is, is moving in almost every other industry. And I think is, is, um, is, is coming to legal at a, at a, at a decent pace is the number of tools that service platforms. So, uh, in in lead gen, it's just not Yellow Pages advertising or Google advertising. It is actually identifying a potential customer and getting them to a platform and creating interactivity there and creating conversation and re-conversation, et cetera. Very similarly, the platform, as you move it into the operational piece, you're seeing more and more tools. And by the way, a lot of this is driven because investors are finally starting to believe and starting to understand, A, how much money is in legal and uh, uh, how, how ripe it is for disruption. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of investment. So 
on the operational and on the manufacturing line, uh, one of the struggles in that historically is that there is so much data. There is so much, um, uh, it, it, it's this, it, imagine it's like this, it's this field of data often. You know, we often talk about data lakes. It's, it's this lake of data that uh, you can't get your arms around. So we're starting to see platforms. Uh, Clio would be a phenomenal example. But you're even seeing it in the litigation process where they're using AI and ML to, uh, well, they're using technology, a platform and technology to first help people get their arms around all of that data, all those pieces that impact their practice operationally or in the art of law. And then AI and ML is helping them think through how these pieces pertain to any given instance. Right. And so, and, and I think we've had the least amount of innovation or, or we're least ripe in the innovation on that judicial side. But I'm a big believer that right in that middle, if operationally we can make law firms more efficient and we can, whether it's client records or conflicts or legal research or whatever it is on that, the, those operational pieces and make them uh, much more graspable and snapshotable and understandable for the lawyer, that will ultimately spill into the courts because the courts are more efficient. They see it happening well within the law firms. They understand it better. And you start seeing judges, for example. I mean, a judge, how I like think about the process. And I won't go on and on about this, but a judge right now in understanding and processing case law hands a massive stack of documents or a massive zip file to a clerk who reads it all. Okay. And then, and then they have a conversation that that goes back and forth on whether the that it, it all makes sense so much of that process in other industries is being automated right and while the while the judge can be the ultimate arbiter and overlay machines will have to have their place there's so much case law out there and there's so much bad law that is driven because you have judges or clerks that didn't get their arms around it all. But machines can help us uh, uh, process, understand, uh, push that entire process forward. And unfortunately, when it comes to the courts, I think we're 15, 20 years out on that. But if we can, if we can do better in the middle, or maybe even on the client acquisition, but it doesn't quite touch. It's, uh, I, I think it really sits in the operational part for law firms, uh, uh, both on the client side and the art side and the manufacturing side. The more that we can uh, uh, grasp all of the different vectors that impact those operations and the, the art of being a lawyer, uh, all boats will rise and, and it'll be the firms, it'll be the lawyers, it'll be the law clerks, it'll be the, uh, the courts themselves. And <clears throat> tying this all back with some of the earlier parallels you were drawing to the, the Ubers of the world and the Amazons and the, the Airbnbs that have focused on the client experience, focused on the consumer. I, I think the key point here as well is they've, they've in turn unlocked enormous latent demand that didn't exist prior to those. Exactly. Things. So the, the lawyers looking for the opportunity in all of this, if you're able to 
to innovate and, and we need the, I agree wholeheartedly with you, we need the, the courts and the judicial system to evolve in kind to, to match this opportunity to better service the needs of the market. And I think what you uh, helped accomplish at, at AVO and is still a lot of work to be done is this, this data that we see from the World Justice Project that 77% of consumers did not have their legal issue resolved by a lawyer on the, on the supply side. You see most lawyers telling us they need more work, they need more clients, they need more cases. There's still a lot, there's a bridge to be built connecting those two worlds. And uh, I, I know you and I both believe technology has uh, got to be a big part of that. Uh, a, a concluding thought, Mark, our, uh, the conversation has been amazing and the time has flown by. A parting thought, I would love for you to think about a call to action to, you know, our, our listeners are everyone from, from lawyers to bar leaders, the executive directors, the presidents, um, and, and some judges that are, are listening to help enable the change that you think we, we need to see over the next decade. If we think about chapter two of the, the book we're writing about legal transformation, uh, what would your call to action be? Uh, I, I can really come up with so many of them, but I think they all, so uh, let me frame it like this and I'll try not to be too verbose. Um, we are taught as lawyers to be perfectionists. Um, perfection is the absolute enemy of good. Perfection is the absolute enemy of progress. And man, if that's not one thing I learned early in technology is technologists, business people, they experiment a lot. And when it's not perfect, then they quickly pivot and they modify it, but it allows them to get things out the door and it allows them to have the conversation with their customers. And uh, so I feel that whether it's from the regulatory top-down point of view or the small business, you know, single solo lawyer who's just hanging a shingle and trying to make it, if I could, if I could tell them all just one thing, again, there are a lot of things I would tell them, uh, it, would, uh, it would be progress, not perfection. That is something, I'll, I'll close with this kind of funny story. I, I used to tell my legal team, when I was a general counsel at Expedia, I would always tell them progress, not perfection. Like that contract does not need to be 100% perfect. Know the eight things that we die over, let the rest go. Like just yeah. move the business forward. And uh, they even gave me a plaque. It's in here somewhere uh, <laughs> uh, in my being renovated office. But um, it, it says progress, not perfection. I found out after the fact that that is actually a mantra for Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and somebody saw it in my office and was like, hey, did you go to AA? So uh, maybe I picked it up from somewhere. I, I don't know. But it, it, whether you use it for Alcoholics Anonymous or whether you use it for your practice or your court, it, it's so important that, that, that you, we as an industry have to make progress and we cannot be stymied by trying to be perfect. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. 
Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 